Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can, the best way possible, while dodging some bullets doing so. Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own, because you're, you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage. Why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What is making me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in their job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like, what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying and you're like, what happened? I had no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title. You get a title, you get a title. Either pay me or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. You can use this. This is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore. My name is Tal Shmueli, and I will be your host. Good morning. Good morning, Tal. Itai, thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. So let's kick it off with the basics. Who are you? What do you do? <laughs> and why do you do it? I am a CFO for hire. I actually have a company that I started up with uh, a partner. We currently provide financial services for uh, almost 40 startups. If I had to uh, describe mainly what we do is not just financial services. I think one of the main things that people need to know when they decide that they want to uh, embark on this venture of creating a startup is probably understanding that there's a lot more behind it than what meets the eye. Uh, there are a lot of things that you need to know, and probably most of them are things that you've never encountered before. And the reason for that is that most people, at least in this ecosystem, people who uh, at some point in their lives decide that they want to, uh, to start a startup are basically people that come from uh, a lot of different disciplines. They know a lot about their own business. They know what needs to be done as far as... Uh, developing, researching, uh, everything that has to do with R&D. Some of them are also very good sales and marketing people. So they know how to sell the product. They know how to um, promote it. And they might even be very, very good at uh, raising capital for their uh, venture. But for the most part, and that, that has been my experience, for the most part, they're almost oblivious to everything that needs to be done in terms of uh, finance, operations, legal, HR, setting up the whole structure uh, of the startup, dealing with tax issues, dealing with local uh, labor law issues, dealing with even the, the, the just removing the red tape and trying to get things moving forward. I think we talked about it in the past about just opening a bank account could be something that takes weeks or months if you're not doing it correctly. I think this is the main challenge for a lot of these people when they start the process is there's so much they're not aware of. A while back, uh, I met with a startup, two people, two very, very talented software engineers with a lot of experience from very big companies who at some point decided that they want to start their own uh, company. And not only that, but they were also able to almost immediately raise uh, a seed investment of approximately a million dollars, which is a lot of money for two people who have never had a company before. When I first met them, 
they needed the basic services. A lot of people approach me initially just for uh, bookkeeping and payroll services, which is a necessity. And uh, we had a meeting and I wanted to see what they had planned in terms of the business, in terms of the budget, in terms of how far the money that they had raised will take them. And what we've discovered is that they created a, a very, very elaborate budget, but all of it was for R&D. None of the money, not even $1, was planned on being spent on anything other than R&D. They planned payroll for, uh, for their engineers and anything else that they needed, software or whatever. After the meeting, uh, we had a long list of items that were not covered by the budget, by, by, by their investment. And uh, what they had realized is that in, since initially they assumed that this money will last for a year, now they understand that this money is only going to take them for seven or eight months. So this is a huge thing for a startup. If you don't understand that, if you don't understand that you have to pay for insurance, you have to pay for, um, I don't know, meals for your employees because that's the, the standard in Israel, for instance. And by the way, for each country in the world, you have your own uh, uh, items that you need to account for. And these are brilliant people, but they have never done this before. And if you don't have someone that tells you, listen, these are the things that you need to pay attention to, it's very difficult to learn this out on your own. Or if you do learn this out on your own, it will probably be at a huge cost. Uh, so this is one of the things that we try to do. We try to kind of shed some light what's going to come next. So opening a bank account, for instance, a lot of people would say, well, I, I've opened a bank, a bank account for myself. I maybe I've opened a bank account for my kids. It's not that difficult. And it's true. It's not that difficult when you're doing it on your own. But if you have to do it for a company, it's an entirely different process. There are so many things that you need to know. Each country has its own rules and regulations. And if you don't come prepared, you'll just find yourself going back and forth to the bank with more and more documents and a never-ending process. All of these small things ultimately add up to something that is a huge time swallower. I would say yeah. that your, your time just disappeared. And by the way, that's another thing. If you start your own company, you need to set up some time for management. And this is, again, something that a lot of the startupists don't understand. It's not just the R&D. Now you're a manager, you're a CEO of a company. You need to take care of legal, you need to take care of accounting, you need to take care of operations, you need to take care of handling all the um, negotiations with all the vendors. Now, each vendor that you close a deal with, even if it's just for buying furniture, is something that you need to negotiate. There's a process. It takes time. These things are so time-consuming. And if you don't expect that, if you don't predict that, if you don't allow the time, you'll be surprised and not in a good way. A lot of the times people will say, hey, I have my lawyer it's a great law firm. I have my accountant. It's a great accounting firm. I'm sure they will tell me what to do. But what you forget to realize or you, you fail to realize is that these people will only act once you approach them. And if you don't know what to, to approach them about, it's unlikely that they will approach you on their own initiative. And this is, I guess, that would be the main difference when you get somebody who is your CFO for hire he acts as your internal officer. He works for you. He tells you what to do, and he's not waiting to be told or asked what to do by the CEO because the main assumption is, when I work with a startup, is that the founders are not even aware of what they need from me. I know better than them what they need from me, at least in the initial phases. Of course, they can ask me for a lot of things and you know, <clears throat> we can work together, but it's unlikely that they would know that upon setting a U.S. subsidiary, you need to create an intercompany agreement, okay, to avoid uh, uh, tax exposure. So these are the things that should come from your CFO. And this is what you need to expect. Even something is, is minor, technical, is a, an intercompany agreement, is, it can take about a, a month to draft with the, uh, with the lawyers and with the accountant to sign it off. There's a, there's a, I don't know, a chunk of money that goes with like $5,000, $5,000 for an early stage startup. That's, a, you know, a quarter or a sixth of the, of the burn rate. So by the way, when you have a CFO from day one, he will probably be able to better negotiate all of these things. Instead of having you pay a lot of money to a lot of consultants, you might be paying him something, but it will probably be a money saver uh, because he's been there. He has a huge uh, uh, a list of uh, providers 
and he knows the um, going rate for almost each and every service. I want to release the CEO, to release the founder from having to spend his time on things that he has no added value in. Okay, there are a lot of things that I can do better, shorter period of time. And bear in mind that even though, at least with young startups, the founders may not be drawing a salary to begin with, still their time is the most valued resource that the company has and has to be treated as such. So anything that you can do to relieve them from dealing with operations, legal, HR, anything that is bureaucratic that somebody else can do better than them, you should do that. I think every founder would want to place themselves in the position where, where they contribute the most to the company. So if I had to learn from, a, from scratch how to start a business, how to, uh, how to run a PNL or whatever, how to set up a, a subsidiary in a different market, I could do it. Is it a worthwhile investment of my time when I could be speaking to customers, working with investors? Probably not. I guess the, the worst thing about that is that there are, things that you, there are things that you decide not to do as a choice. You say, well, this is not something I want to spend the money on. But uh, what frightens me more are things that you're not even aware of, things that you need to do and you have no idea that you need to do them. When we meet startups, a lot of the times we t- it takes us a few weeks or sometimes even a few months to put things in order just because the founders had no idea that A, B, and C needed to be done and these things weren't dealt with. So one of the things that I think is most, most important about actually working with the CFO is making sure that you're compliant. You have to be compliant with labor law. You have to be compliant with tax law. You have to be compliant with uh, corporate law. And you have to make sure that you don't create any exposures in any territory. And bear in mind that a lot of the startups already have subsidiaries in Europe or in the States. So your exposure is very, very big. People are not even aware of the fact that they're doing things that are wrong. So this is a main contribution of, uh, of a CFO to make sure that you are compliant. You can start a company with a laptop and a Wi-Fi in any coffee shop. Literally start a company, build a brand, put a website, start selling services and start and start collecting money. But on the other hand, once this thing becomes a financial entity, a business entity, there is a world of well compliance that you need to adhere with. Let me give you a, a, a great example for that. This is something that people are always amazed by. Let's say that you decided to create your own startup in a coffee shop and you were sitting on your own with your laptop and you start working and you spend a lot of time and effort and maybe you have somebody working with you. You don't have a company or you haven't been incorporated. You're not operational in any territory in the world, you're just creating something. The thing that you're creating is something of value, but the value is undeterminable at this point in time. And then at some point, you approach an investor and this investor wants to invest in your invention. But the investor will say, well, let's incorporate, let's have a company, let's have shares. I will be the holder of so-and-so shares. Let's bind it legally. So you go and you create, you incorporate a company, but now you have to transfer the knowledge and the IP that you had already created to this company, okay? Most people will say, this is my company. What's the issue? I invented it on my own and I'm now putting it in my own company. The tax authorities in almost every country in the world will disagree with you. They will treat it as a taxable event because you basically created IP or something of value and now you gave it to a company in exchange for shares. This is a taxable event in almost every territory. And if you don't deal with this, you're already exposed and you've just only started your company. And that's something that happens in my mind. I came up with an idea. I want to monetize it. Already, I, am, I, am a, a, I need to adhere to some, some tax regulations. You do. It's so basic, but if you go into an agreement with an investor, of course, it needs to be legally blind. Binding. Of course, there needs to be an exchange of a, an exchange of value, and of course, I can't take that money and put it in my own savings account. Of course, this is like you'll be amazed how many people don't even understand that, and how many people actually work. And we we've actually encountered a company a few years back that the entire operation of the company, after an investor had already invested in the company, was run through the personal checking account of the founder and his wife. Seriously. 
So these things happen on a daily basis just because people are not aware. So how soon should startup uh, founders and entrepreneurs go and speak to a CFO or, or a bookkeeper? I would say, first of all, there's a huge difference between a CFO and a bookkeeper. Uh, the bookkeeper is the person that just does the uh, uh, technical accounting. But you should definitely speak to, um, you, you should speak to a, a, a professional. Uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the people that are out there uh, would take your meeting to begin with free of charge, just as an introduction meeting, and will give you some pointers, things that maybe they will not already deal with the actual issues, but they will definitely point fingers and show you uh, what are the things that you have to pay attention to in order not to be at default in any um, aspect. So it's definitely worthwhile to speak to accountants, lawyers, or maybe your friends, or maybe entrepreneurs who have already started their own startup just to get these pointers and make sure that you're not missing out on something. And secondly, yes, if you want to uh, have good service, if you want to have somebody consult you at the beginning of the road and make sure that you're not making any mistakes, that may cost a little bit of money. But in the long run, actually not even in the very long run, in actually quite short run, will repay itself because you'll be saving a lot of money on a lot of unnecessary things. You'll be saving time. And you'll be saving uh, a lot of headache. And most importantly, you'll be saving, you'll not be facing any exposures. So let's talk for a second about, about giving away shares in your company in exchange for paychecks. What are the rewards? What are the risks? So first of all, it's definitely something that the startup industry has brought uh, into the world, I guess, in a, in a very uh, extensive way. And that's payment with equity, using equity as a payment method. Uh, we know that employees for all startups expect to get stock option. Uh, and a lot of the times you also um, give warrants or options to people that had worked with you at the beginning of the road when you had no money. And you basically said, well, I can't pay you now. Why don't I give you a portion of the company? That will be payment. I don't want to go into the tax issues of, of this process because uh, this is something that you can probably get consultation on uh, when it becomes relevant. But it is important to understand that equity is probably uh, the most valuable asset that you have when you have a startup. So it's not something that you should be um, using lightly as a method of payment. Obviously, uh, with your employees, most companies will set up a stock option plan. They will allocate anywhere between 10 and 20% of the stock option for employees because that's the standard and employees expect that and would be very difficult to uh, hire people without offering them uh, a portion of the company. But as for other consultants, I think you should be careful with how you use your equity and bear in mind that sometimes actually paying money would cost you a lot less than giving away equity. It's probably something that should be used with consultants or service providers that are really crucial to the system. Equity, giving away equity uh, for employees or for other people usually is not just a method of payment. It's also a method of retention. So you give employees stock option and they're spread over a vesting period of four years. That has meaning. You want to, um, first of all, incentivize your employees to work to the success of the company and they have a part of the company, but you also want them to be connected to the company for at least four years, at which point you'll probably grant a little more. So that doesn't apply to each and every, um, a lot of the vendors can just be paid. So vesting is, uh, is the financial term that explains that you are entitled to a certain number of options, but you get them uh, incrementally over time in order to make sure that people stay. Mm-hmm. Funny thing is that four years in a startup life, how many startups actually make it? No. So... The stock option for employees is a tool. The standard of a standard vesting period is 48 months, so it's four years. But a lot of the startups will, after four years, grant you some more options because they understand exactly what you're saying. Employees will ask for these stock options. And by the way, there are employees who jump from startup to startup and gather up their stock options in each and every company in the hopes that one of them will, will exit at some point and they will have Seriously, so that's a strategy. Yeah. So you'd go in, you'd give some time, you get some options, some of them vest, you, you buy the options for pennies, you move on to the next venture. 
and hope that one day the stocks that you bought for pennies will be worth yeah absolutely funny you can look at the employee as an investor but I think most employees do value their the place that they work they don't just go there for the stock option the stock option is just one of the components that tie you to um, to your place of employment you also need good relationship a good vibe challenges professional challenges something that's important to say about equity is that the It's not always giving out equity doesn't always come in the form of, of a binding legal agreement. Sometimes it could be an email or a handshake. And these are things that founders often do or sometimes do without thinking you know, fully and clearly about what is going on. So there could be a situation where uh, I've said, Itai, listen, help me out here. I need some financial support for the next uh, whatever, whatever months. Uh, will give you 0.5 percent of the company it's not written anywhere but this exchange had happened two years go by and the tie comes back and says hey I just saw you raised 20 million bucks uh, what about my options so that, that actually is um, uh, something that would probably be uh, avoided at a sooner at an earlier stage because um, you, you're correct about the fact that when people just start their company, They might come shake your hand and say, "Well, why don't you help me and I'll give you a portion of the company?" But um, at the end of the day, owning stock at a company is almost like owning an apartment or it has to be recorded somewhere. There has to be a record uh, of your ownership. If it's in Israel or it's in the states, you will at some point need to have these shares or stock option on records for tax purposes. For corporate purposes for voting rights purposes so I mean obviously if you had given a promise to someone and you failed to deliver then you have a problem with that person but at the end of the day everything that has to do with equity is very very organized there's a cap table everyone is on it you will know and by the way this is um, if you want to raise money from investors this is uh, one of the main things that the investor would want to see is who has any kind of equity rights in the company before he invents he invests and they'll ask it time and time again to make sure are you 100% sure that you haven't given up it's not it's well if, if you've ever been to a due diligence process it's uh, much more uh, methodical you uh, as a company you give a lot of um, representations about the company and one of the main ones is who is the holder of any type of right to whether it's a warrant, an option, a share in your company. So once you've given that representation, that's where it is. So let's talk about the difference between options and stocks. This is actually, this could be a whole, new, a whole session. And if you want, I'll come again for session 21 and explain the whole stock option mechanism. But just um, in a nutshell, an option is the right to purchase stock At a predetermined price so when you have an option you're basically you don't have the stock yet but you have the right to purchase the stock at a price that has been agreed now this means that in the future uh, when the stock is much more valuable you will still have the right to purchase it at this price that you have agreed upon and this is how you basically profit from the option because you buy the share very small price and it's already worth much more and And if the company is already publicly traded or has gone an M&A transaction, it means that the share will be purchased from you at the high price. And this is how employees make money out of their stock option. So that's, that's, that's options. And stocks is what happens after a financial event that makes the, uh, makes the you're giving me a no in no. the head. I'm like, oh my God. Okay. Whenever I'm uh, required to, or requested to talk about this, the first thing that I always say when I speak to uh, employees at companies that I work with is what you need to know is that every company has stock. Even if it's a private company, even if you and I j- were to just start our own company for um, selling coffee, okay? That'd and we would go company. and register this company in the Israeli Register of Companies, It will already have stock. People often confuse stock as something that is traded publicly traded on the stock market. It's true that stock of publicly traded companies is traded on the stock market, but that doesn't mean that private companies don't have stock. Stock or share is what you have 
basically indicates what is the share of your uh, your share in the company. So private companies have that as well, and you can sell and buy share or stock private com- at private companies. It's just not on the stock market. Okay, if you own a portion of a company, you have shares or stock, and I can buy it from you. Stock option is an option to buy stock. Got it. Thank you for clarifying this. Um, so now I'd want to go into a, a different term, the safe agreement. Simple agreement for future equity. Mm-hmm. This is the first agreement a, a company founder will have with investors, right? So again, not necessarily, but yes, it has become uh, quite prevailing now. It's quite common to see uh, people start their uh, fundraising with a safe agreement. Uh, the safe agreement, in my eyes, uh, basically serves two main purposes. The first one is that it's simple. It's supposed to be quickly. It's supposed to be uh, a short process. It's a short agreement. It's usually, it doesn't go into a lot of uh, complicated legal terms. People prefer it, especially when you're talking about small amounts, just to avoid all the ongoing and legal expenses associated with the full-blown equity round. The main purpose, by the way, it's important to understand that a safe is basically a CLA, a convertible loan agreement, which basically means that the investor lends you money. Of course, he's not really expecting to get the loan back, but he's lending you money, where the main difference is no valuation is being assigned to the company at the point of the of the round of finance. So you're getting the money, but it's still not determined what is the uh, value of your company and what is the number of shares the investor is going to be receiving for this money. That's the whole point of a convertible loan agreement. You're avoiding the valuation discussion until such time as the company completes a full round of finance. And then normally what would happen is that the people who lent the money through the CLAs or the safe agreements will get better terms than the investor in the full round uh, of equity because they took a risk sooner. They put the money earlier. They took a bigger risk. And so normally they would get some sort of discount on the full price of share of the round of finance. Let's say simplify it even further. I have an idea for a product. It's a service, online service of some sort. I put it in a presentation. This is how I'm going to go about it. You as the investor look at it and say, I believe you, I trust you. looks like a good idea. I want to give you $50,000 to execute on that idea. Mm-hmm. Our problem is then that we cannot value the, the company. We don't have, we can't assign a dollar bill to it and say this company or this idea is worth a million dollars. And therefore, my investment represents a certain percentage of it because the company hasn't hit the ground yet. We, don't, we simply don't know. So you give me a certain amount of money. I take that money. I go and build a company. I pull value into it. Now someone else comes, look at the company, says, I love it. I value it at a million dollars because of ABC. Now we can say, okay, the money that Itai gave me is worth a certain percentage of that company. What happens then? You never know what the value of a startup is, okay? There's no mechanism that basically says this is the value at this point in time. So value is always determined in a negotiation between a seller and a buyer. That's how you value a company, when somebody agrees to actually invest based on a certain valuation. The only thing is, this is normally a negotiation process. It's a long process, and you don't want to go into that process for $50,000, you want to go into that process for $5 million. So if you need $50,000 for me now, instead of going through a, a very tedious process of negotiations and through the entire legal process, what we're basically saying is, I will give you $50,000 once you finalize a round of finance at evaluation that will be determined with the investor, the, the one that will invest the $5 million, I will get the same shares as he does, but for a lower price, 20% discount, 30% discount. So I'll just get a little bit more shares for each and every dollar that I put in comparison to that investor. So the investor in the early, early stages will give you money, but not get stocks in return. It's not necessarily the case. An investor can insist on receiving shares at the time of the investment. 
I think that the safe is something that is really uh, uh, common because, again, a lot of the investors don't want to go into the process for relatively low amounts of money. So the round has been agreed. Uh, we've raised $5 million. And now you actually get to exercise your, uh, your rights to buy the stocks. And your $50,000 of initial investment will buy more stocks than the person who came in at a later point. Not more stocks, ultimately, because he's investing $5 million. I only invest 50000 but more stocks per dollar. The safe agreement has become kind of like the standard of raising the initial, the initial capital. We're not talking huge amounts of money. We're talking usually hundreds of thousands of mm-hmm. dollars, lasting a startup, what, 12, 18 months, if they're really lean and they can generate some income. And then comes the seed round. Another watershed moment in the life of a startup. What is the difference between raising a pre-seed round via safe agreements to a company who is approaching a seed round? What does the organization look like when they want to secure an investment of millions of dollars? I think that at the end of the day, if you have an idea and you uh, go out and meet with investors, if you can get a seed investment of $3 million to start your startup with, you will probably do that. There's nowhere where it's written that you have to start with a safe or you you have to start with a pre-seed or you have to start with friends and family. These are just terms that have been around because a lot of the times you're not able to get bona fide seed round immediately when you just come up with your idea. If I was a Silicon Valley executive wanting to start my startup with all the connections I have, I can skip those stages. Probably. probably. Yeah, probably. For the rest of the world, this is the, the, this, is the, this is the path you go through. You have to bear in mind that investors will always do whatever they can in order to mitigate their risk. So at any given point in time, and this is, again, something that I normally try to explain to entrepreneurs, uh, I'll give you an idea, I, I, an example. When working with a medical device startup in the past, uh, a company that manufactured a product that was used in um, uh, spinal surgeries. Coming with an idea to the investors, the investors uh, a lot of the times would say something like, this is a good idea. We will be willing to invest once you have a prototype. So you go and you raise a little bit of money from friends and family or from uh, um, uh, or a safe from somebody who believes in you. And you create a prototype and you go with a prototype to the investors and you say, hey, guys, you wanted the prototype. Here it is. And the investors will say, well, it looks nice, but has it worked? You know, has is it, there a market is, for it? Uh, we need to we need a little more information. Is there a patent behind it? So you go and you raise a little more money and you uh, go to another uh, phase. And by the way, if it's medical device, you have to actually go through regulation and FDA and CE mark and all these things that you need to do in order to put things in people's bodies. Very long, very expensive processes. But let's assume that you went through all these phases and now you have something that has an FDA approval, which means you can market it in the States. And you go back to the investors and they will say, well, it's nice that you have an FDA approval, but has it been ever used in surgery anywhere? What is it called first in man? You say, no, not yet. And you go and you uh, perform cert- uh, uh, a clinical trial and you put it in people. And you go back to the investors and you say, yeah, well, you, you, you um, went through the process, but you did it in Germany. We want to see it in the States. So you find somebody to do it in the States for you. And then you do it in the States. And they say, well, yeah, but were they, did they agree to pay for it? Or is it just a clinical trial? Because we want to see that there is a revenue path here. And then you go and you start selling it. And all these things that I'm talking about takes, take years. You start selling it. Uh, And the investors would say, well, yeah, you sold it, but have you reached the point of a million dollar in revenue? So you say, well, not yet. And you start working on that. And then you reach a point of a million dollar. And then they would say, yeah, but what about $10 million in revenue? I'm I'm telling this story just to um, emphasize a point that basically says an investor will always ask you for the next step. They always need to see more. They always want to feel more confident about their investment. And this is something that entrepreneurs need to understand. Each one in the ecosystem, each uh, uh, part of the ecosystem has their own part. And the investor's part is to take care of their money 
because a lot of the times the investors are funds who are handling other people's money. So they need to go through the whole due diligence process and make sure that they're investing well. Something to be expected. That's, a, that's quite a journey. The upside of, of raising funds is, is clear, but it fundamentally changes how a company works. Absolutely. It means that you have people on the board, the people that you need to report to. And this is another thing that people don't understand a lot of the times is once you have money from from a VC or an institutional investor or maybe even a sophisticated angel, they would need to know uh, what you're doing with their money. So put aside the fact that normally any investment agreement would probably have something that's basically uh, referencing the use of proceeds. It's in the investment. Use of proceeds, how do we tend to use the money you've given us? Exactly. Uh, so you're committed to some extent to what this money, you have a, a limited mandate to what you can do with this money. You can't just be spending it on whatever you want. This money was invested in you for a certain purpose. But once you have the investors in, there are a few things that you need to know. First of all, they have, and that's on almost every investment agreement, they have reporting rights, which means they are entitled to receive ongoing reports from you on what's going on with your company. Now, these reports take time. It's an effort. If you need to report to your investors on a monthly basis and compare your expenses with a budget, that is also something that we probably should talk about. It's something that you need a professional to take care of. Most likely, this is not something that you can do on your own. You need a financial professional to be able to create these reports and make sure that they are correct and then send them to the investors and then be able to answer all their questions about them. Uh, and this actually leads me to just say a few words about a budget. I think a lot of the entrepreneurs underestimate the importance of having a budget and working according to it. And for a lot of people, at least in the beginning, as you uh, yourself mentioned before, you want to be a startup, you want to be cool, you want to be quick, you want to be swift, you want to be... Um, not tied down by all these bureaucratic uh, terms. Once you've raised money from investors, a budget is basically uh, something that protects you as the entrepreneur, as the CEO. Because a budget basically is your work plan that you had presented to the board and to your investors, and they had approved it. Once they approve it, it means that you are now authorized to use this money in the way that you uh, presented to them. At a later phase, if... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If the funds are used according to what was in the budget, then you've done your job. This is something very important that protects you from facing investors that are angry about the mismanagement or misuse of the funds that they have invested in. Of course, 
there is the uh, mismanagement part. Let's say I need to hire three developers at 100K per year, whatever. And then I hire them for twice the money. They would say, what happened here? Like, it's above, it's above the benchmarks. Uh, uh, this money could have uh, lasted much longer. So I come across as unprofessional. And so, so I think, okay, if this is um, trying to uh, put a lot of uh, wisdom in small sentences, never surprise your investors. Never surprise your investors. If you come, if you uh, have a board meeting, first of all, make sure that all of your investors are aware of what you're going to be talking about in the board. And secondly, don't wait to the year end to show them financial results. And this is one of the most important things about financial reporting is that once you have that in place and your investors are receiving your reports on a monthly or a quarterly basis, they're never surprised. And if they have questions or if they're not in agreement with the fact that you hired two expensive people or three, or you, you've done something that is not consistent with what you've said you're going to do, it gives them a chance to stop you or to at least debate it. If you wait to year end and then by the end of the year, you will surprise your investors with the fact that they have invested a million dollars that should have lasted for two years, but it's only going to last you for a year and a half and they were not aware of that, then you're in trouble. The other side of that is that sometimes you have a budget and you haven't utilized it. So as a startup, I have a certain amount of money that needs to last me a certain amount of time to do an X amount of actions. If I hang on to that money and don't use it, that can also be a bad sign. Absolutely. And you'll be surprised how many times that actually happens. The main challenge prior to uh, COVID-19 was recruiting. Most of the startups struggled uh, tremendously with actually being able to recruit the headcount that they had planned. And so if a company plans on recruiting 20 people in a year and it's only able to recruit 12, you will be underusing your budget. And that's not a good thing. It doesn't mean that you're doing things in a more efficient way. It just means that you're not meeting your recruiting goals. And by the way, that's another thing that you should update your investors on. Because that has a lot of ramifications in terms of product, in terms of roadmap, in terms of, uh, you know, making it to the market. And in the stake management front, they can help. Yes. So if I'm starting to recruit a VPHR, they've seen countless. They know who's looking for a job, so they can help. So it's not just about being compliant and transparent. It's also about knowing where to get help when you need it. So th th this is actually a point that is even that goes even before that. When you raise money to your company, uh, try to raise it from people that can also bring added value uh, other than the money itself. So what are some of the hidden costs that are sometimes being left aside when, when going through the process of budgeting? That's a good question, actually. I would have to say that the main thing that most people forget to budget for some reason is insurance. There are a lot of types of insurance that people need to, uh, a lot of coverage that you need to have. When you have a startup, beginning with uh, directors and officers insurance, which is crucial. But I, I would say another thing that is, if you're talking about the hidden costs, it's not just the line item. I think the main thing that if I can say now after all these years is that people tend to underestimate the amount of time it takes to execute. People expect things to happen in far less time than they actually do. And take, you know, the, the, the main thing to understand is that time equals money, okay? Every month that your business operates, you have to pay, pay, you have payroll, you have rent, you have all the other expenses that are just ongoing. And if you had planned on having a prototype in six months, but you had it in 10 months, then it's just cost you four more months of payroll and every other expense. And this is the main thing that people underestimate. And that puts you in a serious disadvantage when negotiating for a round. Because if I'm, already, if I'm already seeing the end of my money when I approach an investor, they can sense it, they can smell it, puts me in a shitty negotiation uh, position. So the, the thumb rule about that would be that probably it takes at least six months to secure a round of finance. So if I'm, if I'm to break down what you said about hidden costs, it's not about the specific line item. Did I account for all the IT needs or not? It's about, first of all, understanding that you have to be insured to protect. No, I mean, insurance is one, is one line item. Actually, I gave an example because this is something that for some people, for some reason, almost all companies under budget 
when they uh, create the budget. But I would say, yes, the main thing is taking into account that things take much more time. And if you are to uh, kind of like a, a, like a blanket recommendation about fundraising versus bootstrapping, relying on investor money rather than creating an income that, that will allow you to go to the next stage, what would you say? I would probably say that I am pro raising money whenever it's possible. So in my opinion, if you have an idea and you have someone who is w- willing to invest in it, take the money. <clears throat> I would even say sometimes I see investment that investments that don't uh, mature because there are valuation discussions. For instance, the investor wants a lower valuation, the founder wants a higher valuation, and In my eyes, you should never uh, miss out on an investment because of valuation. And I'm not talking about extreme cases where somebody will buy your 90% of your company for a dollar. I'm just saying, find a way to make it happen. Take the money when you can. You never know what's going to happen. And just to give you an example, we had a discussion with one of my clients uh, somewhere in December about raising money from an investor that was interested They weren't sure if that was the right time or they needed to wait to actually have a prototype of their of their product and then maybe raise at a higher valuation because that's the that's the um normally the discussion should we wait and raise on a higher valuation or should we raise the money now and I said i listen guys, I don't know what's going to happen, but we're entering i don't know i I was actually thinking about something that would happen in the states it's an election year. Maybe Donald Trump would start a war with Iran. I don't know. So if somebody is willing to invest a million dollars in your company, take the money. And they took the money. And I think the investment was finalized just a few weeks before the uh, COVID-19 outburst. Without that, the company would probably not have survived. Or it would have been a lot more difficult for them to survive. And you never know what's coming next. So if somebody is willing to invest in you, you should probably, and this is my opinion only, you should probably take the money. So going back to your point about how long things take, uh, there's probably an underlying underestimate of how long it'll take to raise money. So if you wanted it to take three months, then it'll, I don't know, maybe take double as that because of the processes, because of finding the right investors, because of, of market shifts. It takes a lot more money than people expect. I often see it <clears throat> actually not when somebody, when somebody hasn't even begun the process, they don't really know what to expect. It's actually, in a way, it's ironic, but it's, it's more dangerous when people are already speaking to investors and they get a positive vibe. And then they come back to you and they say, well, I have this guy, he's interested, we can probably finalize this within eight weeks or so. It's never finalized in eight weeks. It's very rare, okay? Normally, you would just negotiate the basic terms in eight weeks and then it will take another eight or 16 weeks For the lawyers to do the job and for the agreements to be finalized and for everything to be signed. If you have a year or a year and a half between rounds, in the halfway point, you need to start thinking about your next investment. So again, I'll tell you a story of everything that <laughs> we've already encountered uh, a lot of these situations. I think in uh, 2014 or 2013, I uh, started working with a company as a CFO and they had actually just... finalized a round of finance of 12 million dollars. When you raise 12 million dollars, you feel very comfortable that you now have some peace and quiet to actually focus on what you're planning on focusing and, and spending the money on. And I joined that company. Together with me, they had just brought in VP of Business Development. And we were working through um, r- reviewing the uh, business plan of the company. And the budget and everything that they had planned on doing and then in the next meeting management meeting we told the CEO we should start working on the new investment and he was baffled it's like what are you talking about we had just finished raising 12 million dollars now it's my time to actually do some work instead of going on a, a, a meeting with investors all the time and we opened up the the Excel and we just showed him That of that 12 million, already two or three million are gone. Committed. They're already committed. People are waiting for the money, all expensive. That, and with the increased burn rate, the remaining money would not last even a year. So you, You'd expect that this thing would come up 
in the negotiations. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's you. You feel that if you have the twelve million dollars, you will now have a long time of peace and quiet. But it's not the case. Twelve million dollars for a company at around that stage. The burn rate would be what three hundred thousand dollars. So that specific company had a higher burn rate, more around uh, four to five hundred thousand dollars. But still, I guess it just goes to show you. It, I don't want to go into the specifics of that deal, but I'm just trying to show that uh, at the end of the day. A lot of the times, once you finalize around the finance, you already have to start planning the next one. I'm a company. I have an idea. What do I need to have in my backpack in order to be able to secure an investment? So again, obviously, that would depend on what phase you are. In the past, investors used to ask companies for a business plan. A business plan would be this huge, heavy document with a lot, a lot of pages talking about the market, the competition, the need. And a lot of other things. I think in the world today, neither the investors nor the entrepreneurs have the patience to write and read a long 80, 80 pages business plan. What you would normally be expected to present, however, is something that is short, succinct, and very clear. Now we have all these terms, a one-pager, the elevator pitch. Everything is actually being reduced, reduced to... Uh, Am I able to express my idea in one page, make it clear, who am I, what am I looking for, what am I doing, and what is the need that I'm solving or solving for? And you should definitely be able to answer all these questions on a very, very short presentation. It doesn't have to be a one-pager, but let's keep it short and, and, and clear. And then the second question that you will always get asked is how much money you need and what do you need it for. So you need to be prepared with these uh, answers. And it doesn't, again, you, you mentioned before stretching the truth a little bit. So obviously we're not talking about not providing uh, correct information or misrepresenting anything, but there's absolutely no way for an entrepreneur to know exactly what he's going to be spending the money on because life hits you with curveballs on a daily basis. So you will need money for things that you're not even expecting at this point in time. But still, that doesn't mean that you cannot plan for these things. And you should be able to say, I need a million dollars. I need it in order to hire eight engineers and uh, rent an office or anything else that you would need it for. If at the end of the day, that's not exactly what you spent the money on, that's not an issue. Because everyone, including the investors, understand that there may be changes. So I guess if I had to point out, I would say have a very clear presentation of what you're doing, a very clear budget as to what you'll be spending the money on and how much money you need and, and where it's going to get you. Because people also understand this is not the final round. It's not like I'm investing the money and that's it. So there will be another round. But with the money that I'm giving you, how far are you going to go? Will that give, get you to the next step? Will we be able to have the next round of finance already with a prototype or whatever it is that you're working on? I, I want to see a CEO or a founder that has complete faith and belief in what he's presenting. So yeah, I want him to be optimistic. I want him to have a vision. I want him to be able to see where he's going and um, maybe share his vision with me in a way that I'm also excited about it. Okay, so I don't want the CEO to be a CFO. I don't want him to be uh, showing me how he stretches the money. I don't think that's the CEO's part. The CEO should have the vision. Of course, if you go and you ask every VC in the country, what's the main thing that they're looking for? Or what's the first thing that they're looking into when examining an investment? They will say the management team. This goes way beyond any Excel or any presentation or any PowerPoint. He wants to see that the person that he's speaking with knows what he's talking about, has the ability to execute his vision, and obviously has the ability to manage the, uh, uh, to manage the venture in a lot of different aspects. I don't think anybody would want to invest in somebody that presents uh, himself as somebody who can uh, manage money responsibly. 
that's a given, okay? But that's not the main thing. So the dynamic you're describing is, you know, it's a, be the CEO, be the leader of the company, don't be the CFO. Don't be the CFO. You have a role in, in this dynamic, which is to craft a vision, to, to think critically about it, and then, and then to make it happen. There are people around you that's, whose job is to help you get there. Partly the investor by enabling you to proceed, but also by helping you mitigate some of the risk mm-hmm. and analyze and, and apply a layer of critical thinking to your, to, your, to your vision. So I like that. I expected a different answer. I think that um, even if you look at companies, mature companies, you will see that there is also that there should be a healthy tension between the CFO and the CEO and the investors. They don't have they don't have the same role. Each one of them has a different role in the process. The CEO should probably be a visionary, somebody who can, you know, take this uh, dream or if he's the founder, it's his own dream and move it forward. The board have their uh, fiduciary duties. They need to overlook. They need to set strategy. They need to consult. They might need to look at the next phase and start thinking about the next round of finance. And the CFO is, would probably be the guy with the, I don't want to say pessimistic because it has a negative. Uh, uh, Let's call it conservative. Should be more conservative. He should point out where the risks are, what things might not be obtained or achieved in the given uh, period of time, where we should start working on the new investment. And there are a lot of things that are built up positively from the tension of all these Uh, different uh, officers we're at the end of our time is there anything that we haven't covered that you feel you feel is fundamental that we discuss two years back i think i I attended a lecture by a very uh, successful businessman i think he's almost 80 and he has two very big and successful companies in the states he said something about the fact that had he known what he was getting himself into before he started any of his companies, he probably never would have started them. And I think it, 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 it's something that stuck with me because I think a lot of the times people, especially in the startup industry, have no idea what they're getting themselves into before they start it. And it doesn't in any way uh, need to discourage anyone from uh, doing what he wants to do or fulfilling his dream or creating a startup and uh, trying to, um, to uh, uh, raise money and, and, and get it to, to a success. But I think people should understand that there's so much unknown and they shouldn't be discouraged by it. They should probably expect the unexpected and try to um, come as ready as they can. This talk today was exactly about that, knowing that there is a big gap in understanding in trying to bring to light and make some of that knowledge accessible. Your time is, is as generous as you are with it. It's limited, 40 customers in the portfolio. I feel very fortunate to have been able to spend the last two hours with you discussing these things, and I hope that the people who listen to the show will feel the same. My approach to this interview was that we don't educate entrepreneurs about the, the financial aspects of running the business, and we probably should. So I think that part of the work you do beyond the technical aspects of being a CFO on demand is that education piece. I know that when I go to my next startups, I'll be so much smarter and so much better for the time you've invested in me and in the companies I support. And I'm hugely thankful for that. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Usually, at this point, we ask, where should people go about uh, to learn more about the job and the work you guys are doing? I think in your case, if you're, uh, if you're an early stage startup, that's planning to incorporate and you're operating within Israel, the best thing to do is to get in touch. Um, people can go through me in order to get in touch with you. I know you guys are, uh, are relatively discreet in your digital presence. Please, guys, if you're listening to this and you hear that Itai and his team sound like the service you need, reach out to me and we'll make sure to facilitate that connection. Thank you. I appreciate um, it. And this episode should have more than enough in order to get people started. Can't thank you enough for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I appreciate it.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.